Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. Our guest today is Maria Bartiromo. We all know Maria today as the host of Mornings with Maria, the number one rated cable news program on Fox Business. But Maria is really, really unique in that she transcends what she does in her day job. Maria Bartiromo has become part of pop culture. And that's something that is indefinable, intangible, but very real. There is nobody else like her in the business of news and cable. And uh, she's just a really, really interesting. She's gritty, which goes back to her roots growing up in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. She's smart. She's interviewed some of the greatest minds business has ever produced. She's a fixture at places like Davos. And uh, she was an absolute joy to talk to. We learned a lot. We heard some great stories. I think you'll really enjoy this. I know we sure did. And I really wanted to work at one of the major networks, ABC, CBS, or NBC, because really, you know, I thought that was, well, that's, that's really media, you know? And so I was actually accepted at the CNN program. This news service will be called the Cable News Network and will program continually updated half-hour segments of national news, business news, sports, and features 24 hours a day. I know that we will succeed. And I pledge to you that we will not let the American public go. I wasn't really sure what to expect, but it was such an incredible break that I had gotten because when I went to CNN, you know, it wasn't union like the networks were. So I was able to do everything and they needed me to do everything because they were this, you know, small fledgling network that was, you know, eight years old or something. And, you know, so they, they, it was great. And, uh, you know, I would floor direct and then I would do prompter and then I would rip scripts, you know, as a production assistant, all the entry level stuff. From here, the material goes literally right across the room right here to where the producers and the writers take the pictures and the words and try to put together the actual pieces you see on the air on Cable News Network. The man in charge here is Ted Cavanaugh. Ted, I'm sorry, excuse me. How do you put it together here? Then we have a pool of producers here. Each one does two hour shows, one hour show, then four hours off another hour show. They take the material from the pool and they send it over to the videotape room where it's coordinated with the words and the tape is coordinated. And then it's on to the anchor people and we wish them luck with it. Okay, thanks very much. But when I first got the internship there, I worked in the entertainment division and I got four, you know, four points credit for it at NYU. And that was, was my last semester. So I was graduating and then I, Took, took the job. I used to um, choose the uh, video bump outs and I would choose like, oh, Madonna video or <laughs> all these music videos. That was my first job at CNN as an intern. And then when it was over in uh, May, um, I was graduating and I didn't have a job, you know, and I wanted to a job at CNN, but they didn't offer me a job. But they did say to me, look, we don't have any opportunities right now, but if you want, you can stay in the stay for the summer and work in, in news. And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I want to do that. So I finished the internship and, and showbiz tonight, and I started working at CNN News. 
And I was, you know, going around telling them whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And I worked all summer. And then toward the end of the summer, I saw that there was an opportunity in business news. And I didn't really know what business news was. You know, business news, the business television industry was truly in its in its infancy. I mean, there was um, there was FNN. FNN Prime Time, forging into the 90s with an exciting new lineup. Financial News Network, and then there was uh, CNBC, but it was really, it wasn't a big thing. It wasn't so, you know, it, it was like a real niche, small player. And so um, they offered me a, they, they said, well, come back, you know, take a test and you'll know, do an interview and you'll meet people in business news. And I said, okay. So I went back. And I did that, and um, sure enough, I got the job. And um, I actually started I started the job at CNN Business News on my birthday, which was September 11th. And um, so I got the job, and I stayed at CNN four and a half, five years. Um, and actually, my boss was Lou Dobbs. Here again, Mr. Independent, Lou Dobbs. And um, I, was, I started as a production assistant, then I was an AP, and then I was a producer, and then I was an assignment editor. And then my last, my last job in my career at CNN Business News as an assignment editor was I was, on the, I was on the desk, and I would come up with story ideas, and I would go out, shoot, shoot interviews, shoot some B-roll with the camera crew. Um, and I would, you know, put packages together. I was, I was writing packages basically for the other people, for the women on air. And I loved it because for the first time I had hit on something that I thought I was really good at. And that was creating a network of sources. I knew exactly who to call, what, whatever the issue was. I was really beginning to put a great network of people in terms of markets together. I would write packages and I would give them to Terry Keenan. I would give them to Jan Hopkins, Kitty Pilgrim, and they would go on the air with those packages. And then Lou decided he wanted to change the assignment desk. He wanted to shake everything up. And so they were moving me. And I had done the overnight shift at CNN now like three times. I was midnight to 8 a.m. And then that time it was 4 a.m. to noon. And there's another 2 a.m. So, I, But I was on a normal day, like 9 to 6, doing packages on the desk. And I really liked it. Um, and so Lou wants to shake everything up. And he, he, they tell me, look, Maria, we're promoting you. We're, we're making you senior producer, morning show. So you go back to the mornings, but you're senior on it, which means I would be producing Stuart Barney's show. He had a show with Debbie Martini. It was Stuart and Debbie. And it was um, um, CNN Business. Um, so I was going to be the senior in the control room. So that would completely change my life because no longer would I be able to go out with the crew, with a camera crew. No longer would I be able to interview people and write a script because I was literally overseeing a show and I would be in their ear, you know, telling them, you know, I'm going to commercial break, giving them time cues. And it was so different than what I had finally realized I was good at. And that, that, and that was interacting, you know, reporting, meeting people, creating a Rolodex. Um, so I was crushed. And I remember, and it was more money and it was a, a higher, you know, it was a higher um, title. But I didn't want it at all. So I remember, <laughs> I remember going up to the 22nd floor at CNN, and that was their library. We had a great library of documents and stuff. And I sat in the corner and cried my eyes out. I was so mad. So that was that day that I said to myself, look, the only thing I'm going to be able to do to get out of this and to be happy here anymore. And I loved CNN. I loved CNN. That was my home. I loved Myron Kandel. I loved Lou. I loved my bosses. I loved everybody. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to see if he'll let me work more. 
At that time, it was totally different because you know how we get the economic data every day. We get economic data at 8.30 in the morning now. And now we get it and we can go live to a trading desk. We have cameras everywhere. We can go, we can do Skype, whatever we want to do. Back then, what we would do is we would get in the car with a crew, go to the J.P. Morgan trading desk, interview the chief economist. What did you think about the unemployment numbers? What did you think about the manufacturing data? And then I would physically bring the tape back and then we would cut bites and put them on the air. And so we always needed um, a field producer and a crew to go out in the morning at 8.30 to get the reaction to the economic data. So I said to Lou, look, Lou, I'll do this job. I will take it on and I'll be a senior on the morning show. I said, but can I please stay after my show is over so the show would the show is six thirty and seven thirty. So I was done by eight thirty. But I said to him, Look, can I stay and then can I go into the field with the crew and get the economic bites and interview the chief economist when you know the economic data comes out and all that? And he goes, Really just making you your day longer. And I said, I don't care, I really want to be able to go out with the crew and get the bites on the economic data and be able to continue talking to people because I really created relationships now and I wanna, you know, I wanna keep up with them. I'm not gonna be able to keep up with them if I'm in the control room. So he said, okay, fine, you'll get the economic bites every day. So it was at that time that I said to myself, I have to put my own tape together when I go out with the crew. So little by little, I would go out with it, I would get the economic uh, bites, uh, and then I would say, oh, can you just shoot me on camera, shoot this stand-up for me? And I would always have a stand-up ready to read on camera. And then I just kept, you know, piling up and filing up all my stand-ups that I had done until finally, it took me a couple of months, but I I put a tape together. And I put the tape together. The only place I wanted to work was CNBC. And I wanted to try to be on camera at CNBC because I said, okay, that's the only other network that really respects business news. Because, you know, you have real business news going on. You don't, like at the network, it was like, oh, here's this, the Dow and the NASDAQ did. But it wasn't really telling you what was happening in business. I felt CNBC was doing that. And so then I, I sent them the tape and I got the job and they put me on air. Um, and, I, and I started at CNBC um, in in, Oct- in uh, October of uh, 1993. So I was at CNN Business um, from 89 to 93. And then in, in 93, I went to CNBC on the air and I stayed there for 20 years. When you were in your tenure at CNN, and those really were very different times for cable news and for business news, I guess it was really the war in the Gulf in a lot of ways that really vaulted CNN forward. Oh, well, that's, that's absolutely right, Matt. I mean, look, when I was at CNN, we were doing something that nobody else was doing. Here we go. I'm, I'm just looking out the window. The security people have forced us to close our windows. This was, this was Ted Turner's CNN. This is not the CNN of today. This was, this was innovation, Ted Turner. Any list of the legends of American business would have to include the name Ted Turner. Bold and frequently controversial, Turner was very much a disruptor in his prime. At this very moment, no matter what time it is, America is receiving information and news from all over the world. Never before has television news had the immediacy, the thoroughness that it does now. Introducing the Cable News Network. The news, 24 hours every day. He was going to upend the entire media industry, and he was going to start covering things as they were happening. And of course, here we are, and the first Gulf War. And I remember, as a young production assistant working at CNN Business News, watching, looking up at the TV and looking at Bernard Shaw under the bed in Baghdad, 
saying bombs are going off right now. Here's what's happening. Maybe not. We don't know whether these windows are going to shatter under blasts or not, but uh, there's some beautiful uh, tracer fire outside now. It's uh, way up in the air. It's bright red blasts and yellow blasts, and uh, with the windows closed, we can't hear as well as we were able to hear before. But, uh, um, you know, it, it continues to go on outside now. We don't, uh, because we can't hear as well, we can't really tell you as much about what's going on as we would have been able to with the window open. Well, these security fellows also took uh, some of the videotape out of one of our cameras. We, they say we'll get it back tomorrow. We, uh, I'm a little skeptical that we will, but it was the beautiful pictures that we took to go along with the commentary. And I learned as soon as it was like, bam, as soon as I got into the business and went on air, I learned how to cover a story as it was happening because I learned that at CNN following following the Gulf War. And we were doing, you know, the stock market was active and the oil markets were, were incredible. And all of this was our bread and butter at CNN Business News. And we were just, it was incredible. It was an incredible moment in time. And understanding how, you know, CNN was able to change the world with, you know, with uh, covering the Gulf War as it was happening. I learned a lot. And that really served me well just a few years later when I went and became the first person to broadcast on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in 1995. I got to the exchange in 94, but I knew that I was covering a story as it was happening and I knew how to do it. And it sounds like that you really had the energy for it and the passion for it. But that was the moment when the whole game changed, when watching the news unfold in real time became part of our culture. Right. And certainly, you know, it was a boom for business television and really the individual investor empowerment movement. I mean, I started my career at CNBC, you know, after CNN, obviously, as a producer. But when I went on air at CNBC, this was the beginning of the individual investor empowerment movement, where individuals felt that they could actually access the same information as other people, and they could make their own investment decisions and, and dictate their own fate. Okay, so people were becoming, and that's when you saw a slew of mergers. You've got E-Trade and Ameritrade, and then you had, you know, a, a, all these discount brokers following Schwab's lead um, to start making sure that investors are on the same playing field. And I remember, I mean, I was certainly part of the democratization of information for individuals. We had a, when I was on the air at CNBC and I was doing Squat Box, you know, we decided, okay, we want to do a new show. Um, and we want to do, you know, we want to make sure that um, it's something that has never been done before. So we, we, you know, I went down on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and started going in the crowd. Thank you very much, Mark. We've got a lot going on. <laughs> As I was saying, we're looking at uh, possibly a record day in terms of volume. I just left the crowd uh, where Dick Grasso was standing. Dick is, has all his lieutenants here on the floor of the exchange. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke told me over the weekend that the media and the markets uh, basically got it wrong last week in speculating that the Fed is done raising interest rates. To see, you know, the, buy, the buyers and the sellers to give individuals the actual market that they didn't have to call their, you know, investor manager. And I remember when I was at the exchange, every morning I would get in and I, and I started, you know, I started with like one source who started to give me his morning call and I broke open the morning call. And that for me was one of my most important accomplishments because it really did democratize information for the individual. Because what you had going on is research was very expensive. 
you know, the major investment firms had their research that they would give to their high paying institutional clients. So, you know, if you wanted to know that Goldman Sachs was upgrading IBM, well, you were going to pay for that because that was, you know, that was, uh, that was research that their big players were paying for. But what I did is I started calling one or two people on a couple of trading desks and they were saying, you know, at Merrill Lynch, well, we're doing this, we're doing that. And so all of a sudden, this information that was given to the highest payers was on TV. And because oftentimes if the, you know, if the institutional player gets it at seven in the morning, you're not as an individual, you weren't really finding out what happened until later in the day and the stock had already gotten away from you. You couldn't participate in the game. But here, the institutional investors were getting their information at 7 a.m. and I was putting it on the air at 7 a.m. So anyway, you know, so the democratization of information was really important for, for the individual investor revolution. And, um, you know, I think from there you went and you saw, you know, this huge dot-com boom. And again, here, you know, you're looking at investors thinking that they can make their own investment decisions. So we sort of threw fundamentals out of the window. And you're, you're buying stocks because of clicks to a website. So let, let's go back to something that you touched on, but I don't want to gloss over it. We're almost at the 25th anniversary of you being the first reporter, man or woman, to report live from the floor of the exchange. Was that your idea? Did you just, was that a producer's idea? How did that happen? And what was the reaction going back to August 4, 1995, when you first did that? Well, it was a couple of people. Um, first of all, I had worked at the New York Stock Exchange before because I worked at the exchange when I was at CNN. And uh, for a little while, I was a producer down there. So I knew the framework and I knew a lot of people there. I knew Dick Grasso. And um, we decided that when we were doing Squat Box, we wanted to do something different. And Matt Quayle was the executive producer. He was... Um, he was running, he was running um, Squawk Box. And of course, Roger Ailes was running CNBC. And so it was really collective knowing that I was down there and I had a relationship with Dick and Matt trying to come up with new ideas. You know, I don't know who actually said on the floor, it, it, was, it was all of us. I mean, Roger certainly wanted us in, you know, and Matt was trying, he was very creative. He would come up with a lot of new and exciting ideas for Squawk. And I had the relationship with Dick. So I think between all of us, we decided, you know what, let's try it. Let's see if he'll do it. And when we brought it to Dick, he wanted, he loved it. He wanted to demystify what was going on down there. He wanted to have more than just the opening bell. So it actually, you know, it, it resonated with him. So your reputation has always been a person who has, you know, consistently over a long period of time been a, a genuine shatterer of glass ceilings. And people throw those words around a lot. We're in a different era now of, uh, of gender equity and a lot of conversation as part of pop culture about the dynamics between men and women in the workplace. And we've seen a lot of people fall from grace what was your experience as a young reporter, editor, you know, going back to that period? Did you have moments that you said, uh, something doesn't smell or feel right here? Sure. 
Well, I mean, you know, there's always uncertainties and, you know, unknowns throughout one's career. But, you know, I, I really have not ever had any issues where I felt, you know, um, that I was, you know, in, in, in any way, you know, like, well, look, when I was on the, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, certainly there were a lot of people who did not want me there. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, and, and I think that um, I definitely did have a couple of, um, uh, you know, run-ins with some people. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are, yeah. So, you know, so yes. But I am also the kind of um, personality, whereas I don't spend a lot of time on what could have, what should have, you know, uh, I'm going to get you back. I'm just, I'm very much, I keep my head down and I move forward and I work hard. And that's always been my MO. So while, and that's why, you know, sometimes it's too, you know, sometimes I'll fire off a quick email because the thought came into my head. And then later I'm like, oh, why did I send that email? Because, you know, it's, it, 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 because with me, something happens and then it's done. I don't, I don't allow things to linger. And so there was one guy, certainly Selden Clark, who, you know, was, I think, a little mentally disturbed. Um, you know, when things got really down and dirty and the market was plummeting after the dot-com uh, boom, which turned into a bust, um, I was in front of the IBM post and I was reporting on what was going on. And he slammed into me with his uh, metal device. You know, they had these devices. They look like an iPad, only it's a lot thicker. And that's how they put trades in to get to the post. So, you know, because the, the, it's, it's a big floor at that time. There are five rooms. So um, he's, he's putting in an order that's, you know, so that is, that's a, a, a very thick metal machine, electric machine. And he slammed it into my back when I was on the air live. Um, and so I had to go to medical and I called my boss. I was like, I can't even believe this guy. He's a sicko. And so he was suspended. He had to pay a fine. So there's that. And then, you know, there was another guy, Michael, Mike Robbins, which is probably one of my most famous stories. I mean, I've told a few people, I, I'll tell you who I did tell. When I accepted a, an award from the women of Wall Street, I told this story at the podium about Mike Robbins. What happened was we got to we got to reporting on the floor of the exchange and I was doing it and it was a big hit. You know, people really liked the idea that I was moving in and out of crowds, giving them the market before, before you know, their broker even told them, you know, they were right there in the action. So then one day I find out that my boss's boss is coming down to the New York Stock Exchange and that is Jack Welch. And I thought, oh my God, what a fantastic coup for me. I'm going to be the one to show Jack around, you know, my big boss, the CEO of General Electric parent company of CNBC. I said, so, okay, now I had already known and met this guy, George, who was the market maker, the specialist in GE. And he showed me all about how GE trades all day long and the, and the accounts that are always buying and the accounts that are always selling at a certain level and what the volume was. And he really walked me through how he does his job. And I thought it was fascinating. And I said, oh, Jack is going to love this stuff when he sees, you know, who the big firms are consistently buying. He's going to love all this info. So I want to show Jack this. So one day, knowing that Jack was coming in the next week, I slowly but surely make my way over to George and the post of GE. And there must be about 20 or 25 guys in earshot. You know, they weren't, it did not look busy. Um, although there were 25 people around or so. And, um, 
I walk over to George and I say, George. And and he had really taken me under his wing the, the preceding couple of months. I had just gone there. I was there just a few months. So he, all of a sudden, this guy in the crowd, Mike Robbins, screams at me. Um, really embarrassing. I, he says to me something like, um, you know, run along. This is not for your little TV show. This is business. We're trying to conduct business here. Run along. And I just was mortified um, because you've got 25 people, 25 guys staring at me waiting for an answer, waiting for my response. So, you know, I had knots in my stomach. I didn't know how to respond to this guy two or three times my age, yelling at me to run along. And so I basically just sort of summoned up some courage and said, do not speak to me that way. And then I turned around and I ran along, frankly, I left. But I came back and I kept coming back. And George did show Jack around. Um, later that day, I called Dick Grass. So I said, you know, Dick, this is really not right, that you allowed me to be down here. You're allowing CBC to broadcast here. And then I have to get harassed all day long by this guy. And so he said, all right, Mary, come up to my office after the close. You're going to meet Mike Robbins. We're going to talk about it. Okay. I go up after the close. I'm sitting there knee to knee with Mike Robbins. The whole meeting, he belittles me. Oh, uh, this is not for your little TV show. I haven't seen your little TV show. But don't come near me at all. Keep away from me and maybe you'll be okay. Do not bring your cameras, you, I don't want to see you at all. Later, I say, Dick, you know, I don't know if that went very well. He goes, well, Maria, the problem is, is even though, you know, he's agreed that we're going to keep you on the floor, he is on the board of the New York Stock Exchange. So I have to listen to him and I have to, you know, hear him out. He doesn't want you here. Um, the problem is he was such a big guy because he was a real major player in GE stock. I found out later that everybody was afraid of him. And he was also on the board. He was a member of the board of executives of the New York Stock Exchange. So if I was talking to anybody, that guy would get creamed later. So he was like ruining my, my reputation, he ruining my rep on the floor because I, I couldn't have any sources because they would get creamed afterwards. He did not want me talking to anybody, getting any information on the air, nothing. So I started walking around the building to avoid him. Then one day, finally, I... Um, I, you know, the, the market was crashing. It was dot-com bust. I had to be in my shot. I could not walk around the building just to pass him. Anytime I passed him, he made a disparaging comment to me. And the most recent and the most prevalent comment was, save your money. In other words, like, save your money. You're not going to amount to anything. So finally, on that day that I had to walk past him because I was late and the market was plumbing and it was so busy, I turned around and I said, no, Mike, you saved your money because the market, and I was like so proud of myself that I, I, I talked back to him. Anyway, finally, Mike Robbins retired from the floor he left. I was so thrilled when he left. I thought, oh my God, that monkey's off my back, but he's not harassing me every day. And a couple of months passed, and sure enough, I go to a dinner with Bob Format, who's then the vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. He was a very important source of mine at the time. And he goes, Maria, come to this part, come to my party at Daniel restaurant. I said, okay, I'll come. It's all of Wall Street. I'll make some sources. Perfect. I go there. All of a sudden, corner of my eye, who walks in? Mike Robbins. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to get out of here. I got to backpedal out of here. I don't want to see this guy. He's going to mortify me in front of all of these traders. Sure enough, taps on my back. Maria, it's Mike Robbins. And I said, oh yeah, hello. And he said to me, I just want to say, I'm sorry I harassed you all those years. I still haven't seen your little TV show, but I read your column in Business Week. You're doing a good job. And I said, wow. I shook his hand. And I was, so anyway, long story short, 
of course, I have faced some challenges in terms of being a woman on Wall Street, being a woman on the front of the New York Stock Exchange, making my own path in an industry which is largely men. Having said that, for me, it's been a great, great success. And it's been, I, I, you know, I never, I, I didn't even tell my boss that story. You know, when my boss heard that story, the first story about Mike Robbins, when I was up at the podium and I told the story to all the women because I wanted to empower them. And my boss, Mark, said to me, why didn't you ever tell me that story? I said, what am I going to do, come crying to you every day? It's not the way I operate. It's not the way I operate. I get the job done. I'm not going to worry about the, 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 you know, the little things. I can't. And it's and it sounds like just knowing how people like that operate that you pushed back and and that he probably respected that part of him. Yes, yes. No, I and, and I get that I think from Brooklyn. You know, I was I, I was raised in in a in a town where you know we were we were we were taught to be tough. We were taught to yep. push back. Yep. Yep, you don't mess with people from Bay Ridge. So <laughs> right. you mentioned you, you mentioned some great, some tremendous names and some great minds. We touched. You mentioned Jack Welch, Ted Turner, Roger Ailes. I know you've been at you know places where there's lots of gatherings of great minds like Davos. Looking back at that earlier part of your career, and we're going to get to your career at Fox, but who were some of the great minds that really stood out that you interviewed on one of the many shows that you hosted or, you know, that you ran into uh, and had a chance to really connect with? Um, Well, you know, I mean, there's so many. I've met so many interesting people in business and even, you know, heads of state. I, I feel like you know, I've had this front row seat, you know, after the individual investor revolution, it went to the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust, and then globalization, where I traveled the world trying to push out CNBC's brand, went to Asia, Europe, Brazil, um, you know, trying to, we would do the CEO international awards, and we would do the CEO awards of Asia, and we would do it in Singapore, and I would host it, a black tie event, and invite all of the leading business people of that region. We did the same thing in Europe, and, and then I would do my show, you know, Squawk Box from, from London. Um, and I did this all over the world and really was able to meet and interview so many interesting people. So it's hard for me to say, you know, but look, I, I think what impresses me is when you have a leader who, you know, speaks straight to it, really, you know, explains you know, an answer to your question doesn't try to skip over it. You know, I think Jamie Dimon is is one of those straight talkers who it resonates with viewers and with investors because he doesn't shy away from questions. In fact, that kind of continued a theme of the last uh, few years of your outperformance. Is it harder to make those market share gains uh, moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've said that competition is fully back. Remember, revenues for one quarter depend on a lot of things you've done over the last years or a little luck literally the weather sometimes. Uh, but I think we, you have major competitors everywhere. I think it's a good thing. People competing in banking and commercial banking and investment banking globally, credit card. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be hard to eke out gains, but I hope we can try to do that. I think that um, I, I've learned a lot from not only the people who have been close to me in terms of my own career, like Roger, like Jack, um, but also from, from many people that I've interviewed. You know, interviewed in terms of you know, looking at how their paths have, have uh, per, you know, progressed. So there's, I mean, I could give you, I, I, let me think about it. I mean, I, I mean, I, when I met, when I interviewed Bill Clinton, frankly, he was a charmer. <laughs> You're great. Uh, I was backstage getting permission to bring my coffee. <laughs> 
So I just want to point out that CGI has facilitated more than 2,300 commitments in 180 countries to date. When fully funded, these commitments are valued at more than $73 billion. Oh That's serious money. You know, uh, Barack Obama, a charmer. Uh, you know, so, so that's a whole nother, you know, lesson in terms of taking away from your interview subject something that these, these men have very skillfully done. And then you've got, you know, the business end of it. I mean, you know, Donald Trump has, you know, his personality and the way that he approaches things is completely different, but there's, there's things to learn there as well, because it's this courage and this lack of care in terms of, you know, how, how something might come out, but he's got his eye on the prize. He's got his eye on what he wants to actually affect in terms of affecting change. So all, all of these individuals, I think uh, there's, there's something to learn. And I feel so grateful to have had this front row seat because then after, after you had the globalization, you had the, the, the huge housing boom and there too, you know, watching, American behavior, we all thought that housing prices would go up forever. And I remember looking at, you know, any market, pick one, Phoenix, Phoenix from 2006 to 2007, the average house was up 40% in price for no good reason. I mean, did the school systems change very much? No. Did we have a population spurt? No, none of that. And yet we thought that housing prices would just keep going up until something triggered it. Uh, that they, they plummeted and they plummeted hard and we had the worst um, financial collapse in a generation. So this is where, in some sense, the crisis began. Yeah, this was the place where people were stumbling out of offices on the 15th of September 2008, the world having ended. The Midtown Manhattan headquarters of Lehman Brothers, whose collapse 10 years ago this week was the signal event of the 2008 financial crisis. It started in real estate, and it started with subprime, and that's the story everyone knows. How does that crisis in the suburbs of America um, move all the way back to the center of finance uh, in New York? Okay, how does it? Banks are fragile things. Uh, classically, we think of them as the funded by deposits with households putting their savings into the bank, and then the householders begin to get panicked and take all their money out. But, says economist and historian Adam Tooze, author of the new book, Crashed. Banks like Lehman don't have deposits. What they do is borrow money from other banks. And that money runs faster than any depositor can run. So subprime mortgages begin to default. Lots of people are invested in those mortgages. Banks have a big stake. And so suddenly when banks look vulnerable, then they don't lend to each other anymore. Investors pull back. That's what happened? Yeah, that's the crucial thing. Which led to a European debt uh, situation, which leads to the election of Barack Obama, which leads to, you know, the election of, of Donald Trump. And, you know, and then there's 9-11. So I, I, I feel like I've had this experience of watching these cycles in the world and in business that uh, have really educated me incredibly. And even when I moved to Fox, you know, I... I one reason that I moved to Fox was because I saw an opportunity to grow. And I had been studying corporate balance sheets and business and the stock market literally for more than 20 years. And when I got to Fox, I realized there was so much I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't understand Washington very well. 
I didn't understand the impact of certain policies. I didn't understand politics. It was just these things I, I wasn't forced to study. I knew globalization, you know, back and forth. I knew the markets, you know, income statements, balance sheets, you know. So, but then when I started understanding policy more and, and, and had an opportunity to have a front row seat at Fox, where there's this incredible depth and bench of players who are actually former insiders. You know, you've got former, you know, Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, you, you know, on, on the payroll. You've got Jack King, four-star general. I really started studying a different level of information and content. And as a result, I've had the last six years the most stimulating conversation that I've ever had. I've done a deep dive on China, and I started this four years ago. I was having Devin Nunes on talking about his investigation into China and how they're trying to beat us. Now, that's the only story. I mean, that's one of the biggest stories in business, as well as what, what took place in politics and, and the FBI, um, the, the leadership there, and, and the attempt to take down Donald Trump. is just fascinating. Uh, I think we're doing incredibly well, considering the fact that we had the greatest economy, Maria, in history. You report it every morning. The greatest that anyone's ever seen, best job numbers, best stock market numbers, best everything. We had the best everything. So go back, you've hosted so many shows, but one of the ones that really popped that I remember was the business of innovation. everybody, I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Business of Innovation. Continuing our discussion now of evolution and revolution, we're joined by some experts in the field. Virginia Pasco and is the author. Innovation is tossed around that word. Facebook was born in 05 when YouTube, the iPhone, you know, all in that same era. Um, what do you remember from your reporting then? And did you have some sort of instinct that that was going to dramatically accelerate change and the way that we get information? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened was we were coming off of a, a weak economic backdrop and the watchword was growth. Where is the growth? Where is the growth? And by the way, I'm still looking for growth. I'm constantly asking that question. Every time I interview people, where is the growth? And growth at that time was being seen in technology, in biotech, and you were seeing innovators on two different lines. So you've got innovations happening, you know, in the 90s. Remember, uh, that's when Google went public and Amazon went public, early 90s. And you were seeing a new way of approaching business with technology enabling that growth. And there were so many things that spewed out of that in terms of innovation. So that was one track, technology and consumerism right? With Amazon, with Google, devices, Apple. So that was one track of consumerism and technology. The other track, which happened slower, but then it started to accelerate was the health track. And what that was technology changing healthcare. And what we saw happening was um, a movement toward tracking our steps and wearing, you know, these watches and, you know, putting our fingers down and seeing what our heart pressure is and, and all of these wellness things and how that happened, how, how that really started to spike was, I remember 
20 years ago when we mapped the genome. And I remember speaking to human genome sciences CEO. He was so smart. He and, and um, Craig Venter, who I still speak to a lot too, Craig Venter, Dr. Venter was incredible. The two of them together mapped the genome. And when we mapped the genome, what, what it did was it told us all about our bodies and it spurred all of this change across the country. And what I mean when I say that is all of a sudden by mapping the genome, we knew that when you eat a certain food, you will get diabetes. It will lead to heart disease. When you smoke cigarettes, it will lead to cancer. So all of a sudden, mapping the genome gave us all of this information about our bodies and about our wellness that it spurred all of these different things. And we started seeing a lot of focus on wellness. Well, I'm not going to smoke. I don't want to get cancer. I'm going to eat differently. I want to have an exercise thing. And that spurred a whole new industry of these exercise and wellness-related companies and there too, innovation. So you had two tracks of innovation in America that truly were changing the world. And I did a lot on innovation. I did a lot on wellness with Craig Venter, certainly. And I think today, what we're on the doorstep of, because back then, 20 years ago, remember, we tracked the genome. We didn't do anything with the mind. But today, we are recognizing that we know a lot about the body. We know a lot about sickness that will impact the body. We don't know as much about the mind. We, we still have Alzheimer's, major problem, autism, major problem, ALS, um, all of these things. So I think we are on the doorstep of some real breakthroughs right now with regard to mental illness um, and, and, and ways to, we, we, we've had failures. And you know, I spoke with Johnson & Johnson and I spoke to Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck, a couple of months ago. He said, no, we had a major loss. We're not there yet. They're working on Alzheimer's drugs. And so I think, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see what's happened with innovation. And as America, by the way, as America was putting all of this investment and energy into our own innovations on those two tracks, technology and consumerism and, and technology and healthcare, another track happened, and that was technology relating to business. And that's, uh, you know, the latest putting things in the cloud and ensuring that we can have more efficiency there. But as America was doing all of this over the last 20 years, the rest of the world tried to compete. I remember going to Russia regularly when they were trying to start what's called the Skolkovo Project. And the Skolkovo Project was um, an opportunity or an investment on the part of the government to invest in companies to bring their technology to Russia and create innovation. And they wanted to be the new Silicon Valley. And so did London. Remember, London thought that they were going to be the international hub for IPOs. Take it away from New York, right? Take it away from New York. So there's, as America took the lead in innovating on all of these tracks, the rest of the world said, well, wait a second, we want a piece of this too. We want this market share. We're going to do our own innovating. And it really did create a great spark of company, new company creation, new wealth creation, new ideas, new ways to do things, and, and innovation. And I did the business of innovation a lot, um, trying to look at innovations in various sectors. And, and Maria, somewhere along the line, you sort of crossed over and became a, a pop culture figure. You know, on all the late night shows, you know, you've been in a 
bunch of films. Not only have you covered the Columbus Day Parade, but you were the Grand Marshal, as I recall, about 10 years ago. Was that, was that sort of surreal for you as you watched yourself, you know, looking from the inside to the outside? Yeah, it really was. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to have had this little, you know, window into a little celebrity when I consider some of the things that I was able to do. I found a diary that I kept a couple of years ago and in it was what I wrote was, Oh my God, this was the most exciting day of my life. And what, (laughs) what happened was I was launching a new show. Um, and my co-anchor was Tyler Matheson. And we were, we were going to launch this new show on CNBC and it was in the middle of the nineties. And, you know, the, it was really, Markets were rallying and it was sort of a hot time. And we got a call from the Tonight Show that, I'm sorry, no, David Letterman. We got a call from David Letterman and he said, I want to have Maria on tonight. And so I couldn't believe it that David Letterman was asking me to go on his show. And we were in New Jersey. We were in Fort Lee, New Jersey at the time. And so my, my colleague in PR came back to me. She said, listen, Maria, we really want you to do David Letterman, but here's the problem. They take at 6.30 and your show is live at 6.30 and this is your new show. And so it was my new show. It was the first week. And they didn't want me to look bad by saying, oh, I'm not going to be on one of my first shows because I'm going on David Letterman. So they said, we can't do it. We can't let you miss your one of your first shows to go on Letterman. So they called back and they said, oh, we're so sorry. We can't do it. Maria wants to do it, but it's not going to be enough time. She's got to go to your studio in Manhattan, and she's got to get in the car and go to Fort Lee, New Jersey. They go, oh, God, let me think about it. Okay, they call back. They go, okay, we have a plan. We spoke with the governor, Christy Whitman. She's allowing us to get her, put her in a helicopter. We're going to put her in a helicopter. We're going to put her on a show at 6. We're going to put her in a helicopter by 6.15. She's going to be in New Jersey by 6.30, and we're, they're allowing us to... Uh, land right on the dirt road next to CNBC. Wow, that's fabulous. What's wrong with the economy? What started it? How to fix it? And uh, what's the answers? Tough situation, you know, because I think what started it was subprime. These were the so-called credit default swaps and yes. everything else. I mean, they sound really exotic, and look what happened. There's, this know. might be a little personal, but my wife and I in the 70s, we did a little credit default swapping. It was Everybody was doing it at the time. To learn more, I sat down with Paul Krugman. Nobel Prize. So we did it. So I go on David Letterman. It was the most fun I had ever had. I come out of David Letterman. I get in the car and there's literally like cars with around me so that I could go to the, to the heliport, get on the helicopter and make my show. And that's what I wrote in my diary. This is the most exciting day. But so anyway, you know what? I, I, yeah, it was incredible. And I, but I still feel that way. Anything that happens, I'm like, wow. Because I recognize everything is temporary in this life. And, you know, all you can really do is try to be a good person and try to do the right thing and try to work hard and, 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 and do something that moves or impacts somebody else in a positive way. And so that's what I always, you know, remember. And I'm grateful for my family because all of this thing, helicopters and this and Joey Ramone, who I'm so grateful to, wrote the song about me. It's all so beautiful, but 
you know, it, it's just stuff. I mean, the, the real, the real things that matter are what kind of a person are you? And I think it's, 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 you know, so I think that that's why I'm so grateful for my family because they're so great. They keep me grounded. Fantastic. Yeah. I love the, uh, the Joey Ramone tie in is priceless. So let's talk a little bit about mornings with Maria and, um, you know, your move from CNBC to Fox. What, what prompted it? I know you said you were looking for a bigger opportunity, a bigger platform. Um, but take us back to that moment. Cause you had a pretty long tenure at CNBC. Yeah. I mean, I would always, you know, Roger hired me at CNBC. So I did have a relationship with Roger and, you know, I would see Roger from time to time um, out and about. I saw him a couple of times. I sat next to him at the Al Smith dinner of all, of all places. And, you know, at the Al Smith dinner, a couple of years before I went to Fox, he and I sat together and he said, so are you going to come? And I said, you know what, Roger, I really think I am. And I was, I said, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at 20 years next year, the next couple of years. And it's, I think maybe I am ready for a change. And I, so we did talk about it. We had sort of this loose plan in place. And then when my contract was up, you know, 20 years is just one of those round numbers where you start thinking about things. You know, I, I don't know. I just wanted to make sure that what I was doing, they wanted me to sign another five-year deal. And I said, well, before I do that, let me just, you know, think about what, where I am and what, what, uh, what we've been able to accomplish. And out of curiosity, I said to my boss one day, I said to him, you know, Mark, I want you to know that I'm speaking to a lot of CEOs all the time, and they all tell me the same thing, that we're too short-term oriented, that it's all about what the stock market's going to do. But what the, you know, what is the stock element of it? You know, these are people's lives. They're looking long term. They want to they want to have a plan in place for the long term. But they don't they don't think they're gonna. It's not the nineties anymore. They don't think they're gonna get rich anymore overnight by dot com. So we really need to be longer term thinking. Let's let's do longer segments. Let's not do in and out and stock trades. What's the trade? What's the trade? What's the trade? And at that moment, he said to me, "No, I don't agree. I don't agree." I said, "What? I couldn't believe he didn't agree." I said, you don't think people are looking long-term? No, 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 we have to speak to the trading desk. We're speaking to the trading desk. And it was then when I realized it was such a narrow scope. And as much as I loved speaking to the trading desk, I didn't, I had to say, okay, they want me to sign five years. Let me look ahead five years. I didn't want to be the person on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange telling you what's going on in the stock market minute to minute in five years. I just didn't. So I said, well, let me just expand my you know, my scope here and see that I'm seeing everything that I can see. And Roger, you know, made me a, a, an incredible offer, asked me to help him with the mornings on Fox Business, help, you know, uh, in, you know, drive ratings for Fox Business while also giving me a Sunday morning program on Fox News. Now, I was traveling yesterday when the heartbreaking and shocking news came of the death of Roger Ailes. Roger was a giant in the television business and before that in politics. On a personal level, for me, he was a true mentor and a friend for two decades. It was Roger who first put me on the air on CNBC 23 years ago when he was the president of that network. I was a young 26-year-old producer from CNN. He hired me and taught me how to be on TV. He made the decision to put me on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It was a first, and it was controversial. But it helped democratize investing for millions of people and it sent CNBC, the network, soaring. I stayed at that network for 20 years, long after Roger left to create Fox News and Fox Business. But we never lost touch. Three years ago, he hired me a second time to help grow the Fox Business Network. 
This network started tiny, and today we are winning and we are growing. We are beating the competition. That, of course, was a staple of Roger Ailes. He loves to win, and he knew how to assemble and motivate the right team to do just that. For the, for the last couple of years at CNBC, I wanted to try to connect politics with economics. I wanted to know more about policy and its impact on the economy. And, you know, I, I was watching Sunday morning shows and it was all political, but never the economy. And I thought, how weird that they talk so much about politics and policy, but they never bring up the economy. Isn't that what it's about? It's about impacting people. You know, these, these politicians, they're actually representing constituents, people. And it's about their economy. So how weird that they never talk economics. And so when I explain that to Roger, he says, you're absolutely right. We'll do a show about it. I said, I love it. And so that's, and then, and then when I left, like I said earlier, I'm, I've grown in terms of what I'm, what I'm good at, you know, uh, what I know and what I, I mean, I've, I've become much more informed on so many more subjects. When you look out ahead, I know you've got the number one show now, and that's tremendous feeling of pride you must have had when those ratings first came in and you were number one. Um, but what else is out there looking ahead that you still want to accomplish that you haven't gotten to yet? Well, I'm really, I, I, you know, I'm really still in the middle of it. I mean, you know, what, what I love about where I am now is the audience. My audience is so informed and so smart, and that really does empower me. I mean, I, you know, a couple of years ago was really focused on, you know, who is watching and who is the audience. And what we learned was my audience on Mornings with Maria is the highest average income in all of cable, which I guess means in all of TV. So, I mean, the, the highest average income, they are, they are, you know, savvy, they are informed, they are independent-minded. They do not go with the herds. They want, they want evidence. They want to make sure they know all the facts before they make decisions, and they spend and invest. And that audience is one of the, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's Morning's with Maria is number one. Wall Street is number two in terms of the highest average income. And I believe Sunday Morning Futures is, is there as well on the top five or six. And that tells you everything about who I'm speaking to. So speaking to that audience, I feel like I want to continue doing. Um, I feel like I'm very much in step with what they want, what they want to see. I, I love being interactive with them. I you know, text back and tweet back and talk about it and talk about them on the show. And so, look, I don't know. I, I, love, what, I love being on Mornings with Maria because it's such a smart show. We have such incredible guests. I mean, what, this week was off the charts. Having the CEO of, you know, the, the founder of Wynn Resort, had Steve Wynn on talking about, you know, getting Vegas back and casinos and the hotel business. Larry Kudlow on, Mark Cuban, um, the CEO of Moderna working on a vaccine for COVID. Um, you, you know, the, the, the CEO of Flow, which is now beginning to produce prescription drugs in America to try to get the reliance away from China. All these issues that I'm talking about every day. It's just, so I don't, I don't really have, honestly, a vision to say to you, oh, I want to be doing this. I want to do this show. I haven't done that because I'm still, I'm still living the dream. Cable has been an incredible place to grow. And, um, you know, and, and um, I, I've certainly been able to you know, have a, an incredible platform to be able to have really smart, global minded, you know, everything 
guests on from politics to business, pop culture. You know, that's another thing that we do. We're doing stuff that people want to see, not just the narrow focus of all the stock market. It's, it's broad. And I think today it's a very different time than it was during the go-go days of, of stock trading. People want broad. They want they, they want a deeper understanding of what's going on, particularly with, you know, with the new administration and all that. I, I can't thank uh, you enough for doing this. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, Kaylee reached out. Thank you so much. Thanks for this long conversation. I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.